0: Welcome to The Millionaire's Lawyer, where you'll hear leading professionals share expert advice on how to grow your business and sell it for maximum profitability. If you want to learn lawyer-proven strategies for building and exiting your business, then this is the podcast for you. Your host, J.P. McAvoy, is a business lawyer, college professor, and best-selling author who has been assisting clients start, grow, and sell their businesses for millions of dollars for over 15 years. Will yours be the next? Now here's your host, J.P. McAvoy.
1: Hi, and thanks for joining us on today's show. We go to California and speak with Zach Winner. He's a licensed attorney and has been investing in the real estate industry for over 20 years. He invested in real estate. You'll hear how he does that. Bitcoin matters related there too. Here's my conversation with Zach Winner. Zach, thanks for joining us here today. I guess from sunny Los Angeles. How are things looking down there these days?
0: Great. It is a nice sunny day, JP. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be
1: here. That's great. Now, are you from the area originally or was it, the, I guess, your business endeavors that took you there?
0: Yeah. Born and raised in Los Angeles. In middle of junior high school, we moved down to Irvine, and then I went to USC, University of Southern California. So back up in LA for that. And then, as you know, I, I'm a recovering attorney. So worked for a Japanese trading company out of out of college, decided I wasn't really into that and decided to go to law school. So went to law school at uh, McGeorge University, which is the law school or McGeorge Law School, which is the law school for University of the Pacific up in Sacramento. So it did spend a few years up in Sacramento, but then after that moved back down to la.
1: and I love having these chats with, as you say, recovering attorneys, right? Yeah. is oftentimes an evolution. And as we you know spoke offline that was it was just that for you, right? Zach, yeah. let's go back to those those, you know, wide-eyed days as a young attorney though. you obviously yeah. you know going through law school, What did you think you'd be doing? Can you reflect back that time and think, you know, what you would end up doing as, you know, what you've ended up being or doing, but yeah, what did you think you would do? What type of law did you expect to be or envision to be practicing?
0: Yeah. So when I decided to go to law school, this was back in, I graduated college in 87, went to law school and graduated from law school in 91. So when I decided to go to law school, there was a show called LA law that was very popular, right? And Young, good-looking attorneys, always in courtroom, in court, battling it out in trial. And so I thought, well, if if I'm a transactional attorney, I'm going to do transactional law. If if I'm a a litigation attorney, I'm going to be in court all the time and, you know, presenting my case in front of jurors. And it ended up not being that, right? So I ended up working for a mid-sized firm in downtown LA, and we did some entertainment law, some class action litigation. We represented one of the owners of a lot of the entertainment venues in the area. And so I actually cut my teeth and learned how to practice law, representing this entertainment venue owner on all of the slip and falls that happened there. And so, as you know, they really don't teach you how to practice law in law school. It's very theoretical. So that's kind of how I I initially started out learning how to practice law. Was yeah. Defending yeah. All of and as you say, falls.
1: yeah, he's talking of the, you know, the television shows, you know, and, you know, as they shift through time as well. I mean, recently hearing some people saying that they're watching something like Suits and, you know, yeah. imagining that, uh, you know, that's what it would be like, uh, life in law would be like. Clearly, that's not it, right? Uh, it's just so right. interesting how how different it is from what I guess the how Hollywood portrays it yes. to what the reality is, to what you learn in law school, and what the reality of it is. Yeah, as that sort of evolves through, you saw certainly saw that uh, firsthand, and then you know, as you say, start cutting your teeth on very specific. Very specific issues, and that obviously led. Or I, I guess I should ask that: did that lead to real estate, or what was the, what was the next step in the progression for you?
0: So I did have some land use cases, some real estate related cases, and even back in in law school and before law school, I was always attracted to real estate investment. My my grandfather owned a lot of single tenant, triple net lease properties. So these are like a Walgreens, Rite Aid, Payless Shoe Store, so. And when he passed away as an attorney, I kind of took over and managed the properties as, as the trustee of his estate. And so I got a good flavor of owning real estate through that as well. But at some point in my career, relatively early on, I'd say five to seven years into having the license, I decided to get a brokerage license. In California, if you're a licensed attorney, it's really easy to get a broker's license. And with a broker's license, you can both broker real estate transactions and broker loan transactions, including loans or mortgages on on homes and commercial properties. And so I got the license. And then kind of as a side gig or a moonlighting gig, I started a small mortgage company and started doing loans for the purchase of single family homes.
1: Were you raising the funds or how, where were the funds coming in from?
0: Well, I got connected with a local real estate investment group. And their thesis was, these were individual people. And the main thesis was, at the time, you could buy a brand new three-bedroom, two-bath house for $100,000. And at the time, you you could get 90% loan-to-value financing. So if you have $10,000, you could buy a $100,000 brand new three-bedroom, two-bath house, rent it out, and you try to get break-even or a little bit positive cash flow. And the main thesis was, if you have $100,000, you can do that 10 times. So you can get 10 properties. And then if you look at the average rate of just market-driven appreciation over 10 years, that value will have increased so that your equity will have increased to a million dollars. So you're turning 100000 in equity to a million. And so because that premise involved buying lots of homes, this you know relatively small group of real estate investors were buying lots and lots of houses around the country. And so I was doing lots of of loans, these types of smaller loans around the country. And then along the way, I started buying homes too and renting them out. And that that's how I kind of got started in the real estate investment business from a personal level.
1: And then it starts just starts to take over, right? Interesting. You do it, you say as a, as a trustee, I guess, first for some family properties, but then uh, yeah, takes on on a life of its own. You mentioned other areas. You and I think as things continue to expand, uh, I guess you eventually became involved in a. Uh, A hotel in Austin as well, right? How did that come about? Yeah.
0: So that was my first transition over to, over to a commercial property and also my first acquisition where I brought in passive investors to invest alongside me. So I handled everything. I managed the asset and, and oversaw everything, but I also brought in passive investors who shared in the ongoing cash flow and the profits on sale as well. And, Over time, I just realized for a variety of reasons, you're better off buying larger properties, right? You can scale better. There's more efficiencies in terms of costs. There's some significant tax benefits in the US if you're dealing with a commercial property, both with respect to accelerating your depreciation loss by doing something called a cost segregation analysis. And then on the back end, 1031 exchanging to continue to defer your capital gains and depreciation recapture tax. So, so there's lots of reasons why I think going larger is better. Part of it's like a comfort level. You know, when you're first starting out, you're comfortable buying a house because maybe you already own a house and you can visualize yourself, you know, buying a house and renting it out versus buying a hotel or a hundred plus apartment complex. That's a big jump. And so part of it's just a mental game in being comfortable to make that transition. But when you do, you start to realize there's lots of benefits. And even though you may be sharing the pie with some passive investors, it's a much bigger pie. So even though you have a small piece, it's a small piece of a much bigger pie. So overall, everybody's you know doing better.
1: And Zach, as you see, it's almost that comfort level, right? Of clients, likewise, who you know started smaller or started in something that they got comfortable with, and then and then they did some learning as as you mentioned that well, actually, maybe there's a better way, or uh, there's more torque here, right? If we're able to yeah. buy a- a bigger project. How do you typically organize those groups, or you know, that those passive uh, investors? How are they typically involved in a project?
0: Yeah. So um, what we typically do is is we syndicate. So there's different ways to bring in passive investors. As you know, you can have a real estate investment trust. You could have a fund, and both a real estate investment trust and funds they could have lots of properties in their portfolio. So as a passive investor, if you're investing in that, you're investing in a whole portfolio of properties what we do is we have individual investment opportunities. They're called syndications and they're SEC or Securities and Exchange Commission compliant. So they're either a 506B offering, which are open to accredited and sophisticated investors, or a 506C offering open to just accredited investors. And so when we have an investment opportunity we'll put together a very detailed uh, investor package that has everything about the market we're going into the submarket the property what our strategies are for the property in terms of how we're going to increase the net operating income and cash flow that the investors receive what our holding period is what our projected profits on sale are and then we'll send that out to our investors and they can decide if it's something that they're interested in investing in and so they'll come in as a limited partner and so there's no you know liability as a limited partner and then we're the general partner so we're we're the ones signing on the loan and if there is you know something that happens and they if we get sued which we've never been sued but you know we're we're the ones that are holding that potential additional risk and the limited partners have no risk other than they're at risk capital basically
1: that's right. So, the, I guess you know a percentage interest in the in the limited partnership that owns the property. It's managed by yes. the general partner. That's right. Who I assume has a nominal interest. And uh, the well, how, how are the gains distributed? Uh, I guess is yeah. it Something that occurs on a regular basis, or is it at the exit, or what does that look like?
0: So, for example, on our on our current property, we're buying a 124 unit apartment complex in North Carolina, and. the way we're structuring called the waterfall, which is the distribution order of preference, the investors receive a full return of their capital before there's a profit split. And we pay out uh, for our our main group of investors quarterly, and it's based off of the cash flow, and they have an 8% preferred rate of return. So that's cumulative. So for example, in one quarter, if we're In one year, if we're only hitting 6%, for example, they have 2% carry forward, and then they'll get 8% plus the 2% that carries forward in the following year, if that makes sense. yeah. it typically
1: hit, or is it typically uh, we're able to pay out as planned, or what does, it, what does it typically look like?
0: Well, we typically will end up exceeding. We're very conservative in our underwriting, so historically, we've exceeded our projected returns end of day once you factor in cash flow during the holding period and profit on sale. What our approach towards investing is we're looking for opportunities that are called value add investment opportunities. So basically at a high level, we're looking for apartment complexes that are good complexes and good neighborhoods, but where the rents are below market Mm -hmm. and where perhaps the unit apartment units and common areas haven't been upgraded in a while. So we'll acquire the property. There may be some efficiencies with respect to management. So when we put in our management, you know, there may be some cost savings there. But then we're coming in, we're upgrading the common areas. We may be adding some common area amenities like a dog park or a barbecue area. And then we're upgrading the units. And then when we do that, we're able to re-rent them at a higher rental rate. So because of that, it takes us like two years to cycle through all of the apartment units and upgrade all of them and increase the rents. And so in year one, the cash flow is going to be, you know, lower than the overall average annual cash flow. So if the average annual cash flow is say 9%, in year one, it could be say 7%. And then in year two, it could be 8%. And then after that, you know, we've turned all of the units and upgraded the rent. So then it's above nine.
1: And so how long is it like, uh, I can appreciate this process Did you say time, what would a typical investment hole look like?
0: Typically, we're holding for three to five years. So typically, it takes us a couple years to turn the units, and then we'll season it for a year, and then we'll go to to look at the market and see can we meet or exceed our projected investor returns. If we can, if it looks like it's a good time to take the property to market, we'll we'll market it and sell it. If not, we'll hold it for you know and, and look to sell on year four or year five. We're typically getting you know long term fixed agency debt. So if something happens to go wrong, if we happen to be going into a recession, well, you know, we can hold it longer and we've got this fixed interest rate debt that's non-recourse agency debt that can carry us through.
1: If an investor wants their money back, Zach, is there a lockup or what does that look like?
0: So, you know, we're not publicly traded. So that's, you know, one of, I guess, the potential negatives when you compare our investment to a publicly traded real Mm -hmm. estate investment trust where you can instantly go online and just sell your shares. With us, it's a private investment, so we do tell our investors, if you invest with us, you shouldn't expect to invest with us until we sell it. You'll get cash flow while we hold it, but honestly, you're going to get a huge bump when we sell it because that's when the bulk of the profits are going to be realized. We're creating all of this equity by increasing the net operating income. And we don't harvest all that equity until we sell the property, right? We're not doing cash out refis. And so you'll want to stay until the end. If something happens and they do have to sell, you know, all of our offerings are SEC compliant and they have full disclosures about the process that we go through to to replace their shares. But typically it's incumbent upon the investor to find a replacement investor. And then we typically need to take it to our other passive investors and see if they want to acquire the shares as a first right of refusal. And then we'll just need to uh, to vet those replacement investors as a creditor or sophisticated investor,
1: right? As you say, it's not a publicly traded security. There's a, a process, this, and this is all disclosed through the limited partnership agreement, the disclosure documents, right? right? They're made fully aware prior to making that investment, and they're likely as established, sophisticated investors who've probably been through something of this before.
0: Yeah, that's right. So. You know, we'll typically we engage a transactional attorney to help us with the transaction negotiations. And then we're also engaging a, an SEC attorney that drafts all of the private placement memorandum, offering memorandum documents that the investors receive.
1: Is that state specific? You mentioned North Carolina now. You've done, them, I guess, throughout. Uh, yeah. How do you uh, and, and I guess it's also or is it dependent on where the investors themselves are from? So
0: the offering memorandum is not state specific, but there are specific like blue sky law disclosures. So depending on you know where the investors will come f- are coming from, we'll include different blue sky law disclosures in the offering memorandum, and then we may have to have separate you know blue sky law filings in those states uh, mm-hmm. once we close on the purchase.
1: Mm-hmm. And what does a typical investment look like?
0: So typically, we're looking for at least an 8% average cash-on-cash cash return while we hold the property, and at least, a, if you factor in the profit on sale, at least a 15% average annual return. That includes the cash flow while we hold it and the profit on sale. We're typically doing that cost segregation analysis study once we take over ownership, and that gives us the ability to accelerate the depreciation tax write-off. We pass all of that on pro rata to the investors, so it's very common for them to get quarterly cash payments. But then, when they get their K one, it'll have a nice paper tax write off that'll offset their income on this property, and then other passive income that they may have, or if they happen to it, be in the real estate industry, they can apply it to their their active. Debt right.
1: Yeah, they account. can make you know, they can make use of it. And Zach, the, the typical size of investment, I guess, is the way I should ask that, or what a, a typical investor typically places with you?
0: Yeah. So I'd say the average size is around 300,000. We set the minimum investment very low. It's typically just $50,000. So it's very accessible. So it's quite common where we'll have a a large percentage of our investors investing 50,000. And then when they invest with us again, they tend to increase it. And, you know, we've had uh, our investors as high as $3 million on our last deal. We had a fund invest $3
1: million, so. you have How many projects do you usually have on the go? Is it just one at a time and you fill it to then move on to the next?
0: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we have like a three to five year hold. So right now we have four properties and we're looking at acquiring this one that I mentioned in North Carolina that we're, we're just in the process of acquiring. And then next year we'll look to acquire two to three more. And then we may look to exit just depending on timing, et cetera one or two
1: how does the current state of the market bear on things i mean we're seeing i mean increasing interest rates and you're seeing you know fixed rates of return being the highest they have been in a long time that's obviously impacting everything and i'm sure you you are feeling the impact of that as well right
0: yeah it has and what's interesting is the velocity at which interest rates have increased right Mm -hmm. they've gone up higher faster than i don't know the last 40 years right And so. In q one of twenty twenty three, for these larger multifamily properties, apartment complexes, there were less transactions than going back all the way back to the Great Recession, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. just nothing was on the market. And so it was it was very quiet for us. We just were not seeing that many properties to underwrite and potentially put in offers to acquire. That shifted now. We're seeing a lot more, I think, the mindset between sellers and buyers, there's more of a meeting of the minds. There's not as much of a discrepancy between seller expectation and buyer expectations.
1: That, that's a nice way to say it, because things were really getting out of uh, out of line there, weren't they? i I've watched yeah. many fronts, not just real estate, uh, valuations were really getting out of line.
0: Very frothy, extremely frothy. And so that, that's come down. I think seller expectations have come down quite a bit. And I think, For some sellers, their motivation has increased because they realize, okay, well, we're not going to see the interest rates that we saw before. That impacts valuation. And then there's also a certain percentage of sellers that may have been, when they acquired the property, they may have gotten adjustable rate debt or bridge debt. So they're in a bit of a bind if that debt's becoming due. Yeah, they're feeling some pressure themselves, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They need to sell, you know. If they haven't created a lot of equity, they're not going to be able to refinance, right? The lenders aren't offering the same amount of loan-to-value that they were three, four years ago. Interest rates are a lot higher. Valuations are lower. So that's created some opportunity as well.
1: So interesting, right? And we've watched the cycles, uh, as you say, you know, highest in 40 years. And we, well, we've been dealing with historically low rates for some time. Where do you think we are in... Five years from now, I mean, I don't know nobody has that crystal ball, but uh, yeah. you know, it's, we're passing through interesting times right now. What would yeah. your, you know, throw a dart at the wall prediction look like for five years right now, Zach?
0: It's so hard to predict where interest rates are going, but but I believe if you can find an investment opportunity that makes sense based off of the numbers today and the interest rate you're able to lock in and you get fixed interest rate debt, I believe you're gonna be in a very good position to sell in three, five, seven years. Because in all likelihood, certainly in five to seven years, interest rates I think are going to be lower. So if interest rates are lower, the next buyer will be able to get better financing terms than you got. If interest rates are lower, the value of that property, the capitalization rate's probably going to be lower. So the value based off of the same NOI is going to be higher. So you're positioning yourself well today if you can get into a deal that makes sense today for a strong exit, you know, five years down the road.
1: So interesting to think of cycles and, and different types of types of investments. As well, clearly we talked about that evolution as you've mm-hmm. moved uh, you know, sort of through through the law to real estate. Your day job. If we can park that for a second, Zach and move sure. to Sort of, sort of other things so again again everything we say here is not legal advice it's not investment advice but are there other areas that you find interesting and as we talk about that you know a couple of years away from now like wh- what's going to be the impact on the markets and you look at the uh, the public markets and you look at uh, any particular equities an additional investment or an alternative investment to the real estate mm. you know i i don't
0: play in other other markets i mean i certainly have some diversity i have you know, a slightly diverse portfolio. I am heavily invested in real estate, but nice. I do have, you know, Vanguard funds, uh, gold. Uh, I, I'm a Bitcoiner. I believe in
1: Bitcoin. Oh, good. I, I was going to ask this because I go through the series, and people always want to hear where people are on the on the crypto or Bitcoin end of things as yeah. well. So, uh, yeah, let's, well, let's delve right into that then, as, uh, sure. as you mentioned, because uh, Fas we talk about a range of assets, right, to see this new, yeah. I think we can say it's a new class now emerge. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, what's the thesis for you?
0: You know, I'm I'm a believer in Bitcoin, not in other cryptocurrencies, but in in Bitcoin. I think it's proven, and I think, you know, we're recording this on on October 24th. If if you happen to see the market yesterday, you saw Bitcoin was up, I don't know, 14 percent in a day, and that's basically based off of the news that BlackRock's going to be issued a uh, a spot ETF, and and they've registered for the for the stock symbol for that. And, yeah, at least and BlackRock, right? We're talking I mean, there's
1: eight to 10 applications. So we hear yeah. that it's coming, right? We're being told now or led to believe it's coming. Yep. Yeah. So I think look, the other thing you have,
0: we have going for us is every four years, there's what's called the halving. So the, the amount of Bitcoin that's, that's created through the mining process, which is verifying all of the transactions uh, that get put on the blockchain ledger, is going to be cut in half in April of next year. Historically, in the past three halvings that we've had, within a couple of months after each halving, we enter a new bull market. And so it's basic supply and demand, right? You're cutting the supply in half. If demand is constant or rising, that that should increase the variable, which is price. So historically, that's caused a huge run-up. So we have this confluence of events of, all of these spot ETFs that look like they're going to, to be approved, if you just look at uh, BlackRock and Fidelity, they have $14 trillion in assets under management with just those two. So if just those two take 1% of their assets in management and invest it in Bitcoin, that's going to increase the amount of liquidity tremendously. And so just those two events you know, could, I think, really cause another another bull market run. It's yeah, so hard to, it's, yeah, it's hard to predict what to predict. The thesis yeah. is there, isn't
1: it? As we as we discuss what this potentially could look yeah. like. It's interesting you say Bitcoin or uh we're talking Bitcoin ETFs. I mean what are your thoughts? You're obviously you know, partial to Bitcoin, but what about something like Ethereum or if there's an Ethereum spot as well that emerges? You know, I'm
0: I am partial to Bitcoin. I actually owned Ethereum for for many years, and a couple of years ago I sold it and and bought more Bitcoin. And one of the issues i have with ethereum is the underlying proof of stake versus proof of work you know and and who verifies it and and whether there are insiders that can control ethereum and rewrite the coding and that could potentially be a fundamental flaw it may it may prevent it from ever being viewed as as a commodity versus you know bitcoin's the only cryptocurrency where Gensler has come out and said, yeah, we think this is a commodity, digital gold versus these others are more akin to a security. But it's doing well. I mean, I look at from a price standpoint, Ethereum seems to be doing well. One thing I noticed from a volume or asset, you know, the amount of ownership, you are seeing a separation starting to occur now, right? The value of, of Bitcoin that's held is is much higher. It seems to be increasing versus versus Ethereum.
1: Yeah, the dominance there. I mean, you are uh, you would have done well, as you say, by selling that Ethereum putting it into Bitcoin. I think a lot of people now are saying, yeah, that's the place that they either wanted to be or wish they had been. Uh, I'd be interested to see if that, again, if that thesis continues to be be true. But a number of people on the show talk of other use cases. As opposed to just that store of value, but talking uh, yeah. of all that's being built on Ethereum and that network effect. Do you subscribe to that yeah. at all?
0: Well, I think there's some validity to that. I'm also looking for with Bitcoin at the lightning network, right? And it being used as a means of transacting, you know, that's one of the criticisms of Bitcoin is it's so, it's so expensive to, to transact. So they have this layer two lightning network, which really lowers the cost and makes it instant instantaneous. If you're not using the lightning network, it can take quite a while for your transaction to be registered, you know, 15, 20 minutes. But but with the lightning network, it's instantaneous and and the cost is is de minimis. So, you know, I'm hopeful that that will help the increased use of Bitcoin as a means of transacting. It's I think right now the majority of people are using it as a you know a store of value as digital gold. So it'll be interesting to see how how much it continues to be adopted.
1: For, yeah, for what it looks like, right? Because we're yeah. still we, we're still very early in this. Yes, we have to be right. We don't even know. This would be interesting to revisit this conversation as well, you know, for yeah. that five-year frame, right? How have things changed between now and then? It would be nice to have the crystal ball that way as well, right? Yeah. Clearly, yeah. things are changing. I think that uh, we talked about, you know, the U.S. dollars, that reserve currency, and are we going to be seeing a change in the way that mm. currencies are settled as well? What are your thoughts on that?
0: I have some concern, but it's still such a dominant currency, right? The dollar is just so dominant. What's the alternative? You know, i see I see these the BRICS nations discussing, trying to go off the dollar. I just don't know how realistic that really is and what kind of an impact that would really have.
1: How realistic are digital currencies?
0: I think they're a risk. I mean, i don't I don't like digital currencies because of the um, invasion of privacy issues that are inherent in them you know, they're very different than Bitcoin. They're not Bitcoin, right? On a mm-hmm. number of fronts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, another buzzword or the things that people are are all asking for opinions on these days are artificial intelligence. So have you looked at any of this? Yeah. What are your thoughts on what things are going to look like from that perspective in a couple of years' time?
0: Yeah, artificial intelligence is interesting. I've read a couple books on AI and the risks of AI. and You know, it can be frightening if you look at some of these risks too long term to really, you know, the impact on humanity and the survival of humanity. So, but in the short term, I mean, I think there are some incredible, exciting things happening in AI, and it's moving so rapidly. That's, that's another thing that's like a double-edged sword. It's super exciting to see all these applications. And I think it's going to continue to further and advance um, within the next, you know, couple of years, we're going to see huge advanced new things being done with AI. But by the same token, you know, it's also a little scary.
1: It's certainly scary. We're we're sitting here, you know, attempting to navigate the future, right? It's conversations just like this, as, uh, yeah. as thoughtful people get together and discuss where we may be going. What do things look like for you in the next couple of years? Where do things go for you and uh, yourself personally?
0: So we're, you know, continuing to acquire new assets and we're looking to continue to grow our business. And so I think, you know, next year, our goal is let's acquire three more you know, larger 100 plus unit multifamily apartment complexes, and then we'll just take it from there. But it's very exciting. We love what we do. And and uh, it's a lot of fun.
1: It's amazing times, aren't they? They really are amazing times. Yeah. Well, Zach, we appreciate you being yeah. here today. If someone's interested and wants to hear more about a project or some of the ways that you've been able to develop things, uh, what's the best way of reaching you?
0: I think probably just go to our website. It's prosperitycre.com. As in prosperity, commercial real estate, prosperity, CRE. dot I'm also on LinkedIn, so feel free to reach out to me at any time on LinkedIn.
1: That's wonderful. We'll have, of course, all of that in the show notes as well. Zach, Thank really you. appreciate having you here on today, uh, hearing about some of the business, how you've been recovering from, as to say, your law school days, uh, and <laughs> uh, giving us some predictions for the future. I like to end these shows with one thing that's worked through you, through your business and you know life. One thing that you've maybe heard, or a lesson you've learned along the way. That's uh been of use to you that might be of use to somebody here listening. Is there something you can think of or you could share, or a number of things you could share that you take with you from a you know on a day-to-day basis to help and lead to your own success?
0: You know, I I believe in in networking, in mentoring. If you need help, don't be shy about reaching out to other professionals. I think networking and meeting with people you aspire to be like, I think that's a good idea. I think it's at least in real estate. It's more of a team sport, and you're better off treating it as a team sport than thinking you can do it all on your own. And so, that a lot of times is also a mental game, right? Uh, thinking, well, I can do this all, and I'm going to do it all by myself. But you know, it's this whole concept of having the whole the whole pie, but it's a much smaller pie versus sharing the pie. And maybe you can do it all on your own but maybe you're not the best at doing all of those various components. And so you can bring in experts from other fields to help you along the way.
1: Absolutely. it's I mean, it's great advice, right? And again, I'll share and prosper by virtue of that sharing. Zach, thanks yes. so much for being on here today. I appreciate you being on the Millionaire's Lawyer. I look forward to revisiting this conversation at some point in the future.
0: Thanks very much.
1: Thanks for listening to The
0: Millionaire's Lawyer. Please subscribe and rate on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. To get your business millionaire assessed and to access the wide variety of resources that we offer in addition to this podcast, go to jpmacavoy.com. That's jpmcavoy.com.